This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde ponders a government so tedious even the shocking revelation of an alleged spy can't sex things up. Grace Dent delves into the great social leveller, cheese and what our love for this multifarious foodstuff says about us. And a male escort reveals what women want when they pay for sex. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, this week, MPs are overcome by the idea of an alleged Chinese agent in Westminster. But it just all seems more Johnny English than James Bond. By Marina Hyde. Read by Isabel Farrar. The opening to the James Bond movie Spectre follows the titular spy in Day of the Dead costume as he moves through vast crowds at the spectacular celebrations in Mexico City into a six-star hotel past a masquerade party, whereupon his glamorous companion produces a key. Up to her room, passionate kiss, she's on the bed, but he's stripped down to his Savile Row suit and a Glock 17 and is straight out of the window across the rooftops to assassinate a man for having a terrible ponytail. Mrs. survives a load of buildings collapsing, spots his mark and chases him through thousands of skull-mask-wearing carnival-goers to the main square. Hang on, what's this? Helicopter rescue for Ponytail? I don't think so, mate. Launches himself into the cabin. Violence ensues. Chopper whirls insanely above the heads of screaming revellers while they fight on the landing skids. Gets the mysterious ring, strangles a few henchmen. Bye-bye, Ponytail. Averts tailspin. Probably isn't going to get his shag now, but hey, it's a living. Anyway, pitch for the cold open to the next Bond movie. Tracking shot, obviously. Sitting at an office desk featuring a pret sandwich wrapper and a reusable coffee cup given to him by a lobbyist for Big Vape. A young man closes the T.M. Lewin men's shirt sale tab on his computer. No, wait, goes back, orders another white poplin regular fit, then fires up LinkedIn and professes himself honoured and incredibly excited to see what this next chapter holds. His application for a Conservative Party conference pass has been successful. 
adds a new MP connection, nearly reposts a tweet deniably intimating another MP could be racist but decides to like it instead, then logs off and walks down a series of corridors, passing other similar young people and dispensing the trusty joke effect observation that his football team will beat their football teams in football matches that are, to varying degrees, forthcoming. Arriving at a small down-at-heel meeting room, he checks the white wine on the table has been warmed to the requisite temperature before fixing upon the door a piece of A4 paper reading Monthly China Drinks. Roll titles. The Spy Who Bored Me. So here we go with the tale of the Westminster researcher slash alleged spy for China, a guy who had access to a number of MPs, including Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Alicia Kearns and Tom Tugendhat, though before the latter became Security Minister. I should say, before we go any further, that the guy in question released a statement on Monday categorically denying he was a spy, blaming extravagant news reporting. But the alleged presence of a foreign agent in the hallowed corridors of somewhere quite near to power has apparently shocked MPs, despite the Intelligence and Security Committee recently publishing a report warning China was seeking to infiltrate and influence UK government at a range of levels and with a high level of intent. Such a conspiracy would be so cutting-edge that even Nadine Dorries would be across the inner workings of it. Her latest column in the Mail offers a remarkably detailed account of how you turn a researcher, apparently based on something that happened to a former colleague. Even so, the notion that effectively hostile powers might be involved in espionage has necessitated the delivery of a truckload of smelling salts to SW1. Yet... Have the Palace of Westminster's fabled procedures for weeding out undesirables of any kind ever really been up to snuff? Please remember that this is a workplace where multiple lawmakers accused of sexual assault and harassment just keep on cheerily clocking in, but it's fine because they have had something called the whip removed from them and they now sit in a different seat. Meanwhile, as far as giving a toss about Parliament's attempts at intelligence oversight go, recent administrations frequently appear to have actively courted disaster. It wasn't so long ago that a Conservative Prime Minister was trying to have the Intelligence and Security Committee run by Chris Grayling. According to reports, it's not having been told about the arrest that has affronted and infuriated MPs sanctioned by China. I feel incredibly let down, ran a quote from one who you sense secretly loves the drama. I'm in a complete state of shock, said another. We haven't been given any support. Hmm. Keeping them in the dark could be an unacceptable blunder by incompetent police and intelligence services. But it could also suggest that they are such quote incontinent liabilities that telling them anything is the equivalent of hiring a skywriter. Hard to say which one it is, but let's make sure we have considered every possibility. For now, it's fair to say the news was not quite so unexpected to former MI6 chief Richard Dearlove, who on Monday night told Sky News, I'm not prepared to speak or speculate on what we do to them, but one has to have eyes open in a relationship with a country like China. 
intelligence collection and the exercise of influence in a clandestine fashion is just part of the game. What the Chinese deserve is reciprocity in their relationships overseas, and I think it's clear that we should keep in mind that approach to this problem. Well now, it's just possible we might have some spies in China too. If not, once they have got over their current shock, MPs should produce a report on the oversight as a matter of urgency. And the government can tactically ignore that one too. That was high octane, sexy, glamorous. Sorry. In this Sunak era, even the spy scandals are dull. By Marina Hyde. Read by Isabel Farah. Next, from eating cheap cheddar and plastic slices at home in Cumbria to mixing with posh owners of cheese caves down south, The Guardian's restaurant critic Grace Dent considers the creamy, fatty, salty bliss of her favourite comfort food, cheese. Read and written by Grace Dent. Why does cheese feel like a cuddle? Well, it's because it just does. It's because an almost empty fridge containing a small slab of ageing cheddar harbours at least a glimmer of hope. And even if that cheddar has a tiny speck of mould, you can just scrape it off and turn a blind eye. I won't tell anyone. Find that toasty loaf you've got for emergencies in the bottom drawer of the fridge. Add a dollop of something runny, like brown sauce or some sort of chutney, and there you go. Now you have dinner. Cheese, in all its salty, fatty majesty, could well be the king of comfort foods. We have all at some point found ourselves standing in the light of the chiller cabinet, scooping grated red Leicester from the bag, head back, mouth open, pushing those slivers of loveliness down our throats and somehow feeling instantly better. And in the same vein, after a hard day, we have all leaned on that slightly fearsome chunk of apricot-laced Wensleydale that we panic bought before Christmas, before promptly forgetting about it. Now, doesn't it taste good on cream crackers with a big cup of tea and EastEnders? Suddenly, your overdue car MOT seems marginally less upsetting. I've thought about the transformative powers of cheese a lot over the years. Cows and farmers and dairy technicians and cheesemakers have perfected it using techniques older than time to make something intense, pungent and sating that always hits the spot. They've done all the hard work and now it's just sitting there in my fridge, available to me at any time. How does this magic happen? Why is it so unique to cheese? Why do some vegans, who have managed to dodge all other animal products, go on a lifelong quest to find the most pungent nut-based cheeses? And why do many would-be vegans name cheese as the one thing they cannot let go? My theory about cheese is that it is special to British palates because it's so, well, completely weird. It's so unlike everything else we love, so unique both in flavour and in the sticky way it feels in our mouths. 
The British were never a nation who embraced stinky or slimy things, and we've never been one for fermented nibbles or stuff covered with mildew or fungus. Some people have even called our food boring. Cheese, however, has always been the exception. A flirtation with the extremities of taste that we somehow took to our hearts. We may never show much passion for fermented bean curd, stinky herring, or decaying vegetable stalks, but we will have a lovely, wobbly piece of whiffy brie smeared on oat cakes. Cheese also has staying power. Milky, fatty things linger in your mouth. They have a persistent aftertaste. You'll still know about that piece of brie long after it has slipped down your gullet. It's still there as you get undressed and head for the toothbrush, and even in your dreams. The cheese I ate in my childhood lacked variety. It certainly lacked glamour too. It would be a long road until I found myself eating fancy French reblochon, or Swedish Vasterbotten, or any other of those cheeses you might see on a board in a fancy gastro pub accompanied by some of those black, tasteless charcoal wafers that mean you're somewhere posh. In the 80s, my family only ever ate cheddar, or if we were branching out, Red Leicester. Maybe Gran had the smallest chunk of Stilton at Christmas. We knew nothing better, and we never got bored. Forty years later, I am still not bored by cheddar. Nor can I ever be sniffy about heavily processed cheese, like the stuff that comes in squares wrapped in plastic, or the squeezy stuff in metal tubes. To me, this is the taste of the summer holidays of my childhood. I so vividly remember opening the fridge door and finding craft singles, feeling as though I had hit the jackpot. They were so perfect for sneaking up your sleeve with an extra one for your mate, and then eating down on the old abandoned allotments or wherever we'd made our latest den. Or the primula cheese and chive that I squeezed onto Ritz crackers when Mam was watching Dynasty with Joan Collins on Friday nights. So very satisfying, so very chic. And that's not to mention spready cheese which to my mind is a vastly underrated pleasure, one far too déclassé to ever be cited in proper food writing. A Dairy Lee cheese triangle, released from its foil and then sucked from the silver, was one of my fledgling food critic experiences. Eating that squidgy, semi-liquefied, factory-refined cheese goo takes the eater almost to the very limits of ick. It leapfrogs decadent and plants its boots firmly in wanton. And yet somehow it's bloody delicious. My father, however, always had aspirations. He was a scouser, held hostage by fortune in Carlisle. But this didn't stop him behaving like an international man of mystery. He had dark skin, but claimed his family was Irish and sometimes sported a Burt Reynolds-style moustache. He also claimed to be able to speak German, although he 
only really knew a few words, like sehr gut and lieb Frau Milch, learned while stationed in Hamburg in the army. It perhaps isn't a surprise that my dad was responsible for the first exotic turn in my cheese journey. In the mid-80s, a local supermarket called Walter Wilson began stocking Bavarian smoked cheese, which he remembered from his time in Germany. He popped it in the basket, and from then on, Mum bought him it as a treat. This cheese came in an actual shape, and it had a brown plastic cover. Unheard of. It was creamy and smoky and irresistible. Me and my brother drove Dad mad by taking it from the fridge and eating it with a knife while watching The Fall Guy and Blockbusters. I still buy that Bavarian cheese, but nowadays in pre-packed round slices from M&S, which is perfect for literally posting into your mouth like a love letter to yourself at the end of a horrible day. While my dad may have won us round to experiencing Germany, he certainly didn't have any love for France. It wasn't until the 90s, almost a decade on, that we bought anything from that far-flung land and, goodness me, did we miss out. All sticky, stinky, soft-rinded French cheeses are the epitome of comfort eating. But for so long, the dents simply did not do France. Like many northern working-class Brits in the 90s, we found France a rather unsettling and unknowable place. No one we knew went on holiday there, aside from our doctor, who spent three weeks each summer in a tent in Brittany, which we thought sounded like hell. Apparently the people insisted on speaking French to him the whole time. The only person I knew who went was my friend's dad, Ronnie, who had a transit van. Sometimes he used to drive to Boulogne on a day trip to stock up on Rothman's fags and cut price frizzanti. And when he got back, he'd be greeted like Phileas Fogg. So France, we didn't trust it. And we didn't trust the brie that they had started stocking in our flashy new Asda, which opened in 1987 turning our gastronomical lives upside down. For a start, this brie didn't act like normal cheese. It wasn't stiff and it wasn't even orange. It was instead pale and gelatinous and it had a skin that none of us knew if we could eat without it killing us and we couldn't even check. The instructions were in foreign. I can still remember the breakthrough, though. A TV advert for a French soft cheese called Besson. It began playing in every ad break, showing close-up shots of creamy, garlicky, cheesy pulp encrusted with dried herbs. The French folk on the ads would lap it up on bread with a glass of wine. Du pain, du vin, du besson, went the catchphrase. It was all so sophisticated. Yes, Bozan was made by Unilever, probably in an industrial park in Hounslow. And yes, it left you with breath so lively, it might get you kicked off public transport. But our horizons were suddenly so much wider. We're going to take a short break now. 
We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay authenticity guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello guys, this is Shante, the host of the Guardian's Pop Culture Podcast. We're back for more. And listen, when it comes to pop culture, if you're talking about it, we've got it covered. As an extra treat for you, I'm going to be at the London Podcast Show in King's Place on Sunday the 17th of September with the expert matchmaker Paul C. Brunson. You know, our fave Married at First Sight expert. Do you want to find your perfect partner in life? then you have to come and see us. Paul has all the tips and tricks. Get your tickets in person or go to kingsplace.co.uk forward slash pop culture. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Grace Dent's article. In the early 90s, I moved to Stirling in Scotland to study English literature. Aged 18, I saw Carlisle and my mum's house as a prison. But soon enough, I realised that I'd kill to grump moodily up our back lane, wearing a Smith's t-shirt, fractal leggings and baseball boots, juggling files of A-level history papers, while letting myself in, heading for the fridge, swinging open the door, and to find it heaving with reduced sticker treasure. I call these years the cheese years. Cheese was my saviour at university. For instance, take an anemic 24-hour SO garage frozen pizza bought on the way home from the Bar nightclub in Stirling, scatter a handful of cheap Lancashire crumbly on top, add a pinch of mixed herbs, if you can steal some from Helga from Norway's cupboard, along with a scooch of black pepper, and suddenly you have a feast. Or sling a layer of Edam onto a Findus beef burger, melt it, then slather mayo across the bun, and you've got something quite delicious. Best of all was the uni canteen, where large, stodgy bowls of macaroni cheese were 22p. These would be eaten while moaning to your friends about that boy you snogged at the balls-up 
juggling party and how he didn't even leave a written message on your uni room door asking you out. Even if dating before phones proved to be arduous, the filling, sating, comforting power of cheese never lost its strength. Cheese does not have to be expensive. Yes, fancy Stilton is what people talk about in posh food magazines. But deep down, we all know the restorative properties of a bag of baby bells. Here's to peeling the red wax off those tiny spheres of happiness as the bus trundles home from a terrible day, popping them into your mouth whole, gob open, like an upright anaconda. And three cheers for adding a large dollop of pale, sticky dairy to buttered pasta. No, you won't see this on cookery shows. But you're behind closed doors now. You're eating like nobody's watching. This is Self-Care 101. It was only when I began mixing with more worldly people in London, however, that I understood the significance of cheese to the posh. We are all, at some level, cheese obsessives, or tourophiles, as they might say. If you have seen the queues at cheese stalls at the city's borough market on a Saturday morning, you'll know that they are full of men called Rufus, who were sent to Ludgrove, aged eight, and had mothers who loved their Labradors more than them. The posh might not be big on physical hugging and affection, but if a Rufus rises at 5am to source you a truffled Baron Bygod or a rich oozing Tunworth, well, you know you're high in their esteem. Beginning my career in the media in 1996 certainly opened my eyes to how unposh I was with my silver fillings, dropped tees, kukite boot-cut trousers and lack of conversational Latin. This got to me so much that I began adding my middle name to my byline on Marie Claire to make me sound more glamorous. I was Grace Georgina Dent. Not regular Grace Dent. The name Grace Dent, I thought, was two short grunts, a bit like being barked at by a pit bull with kennel cough. Grace Georgina Dent, on the other hand, sounds as if she's summered in Martha's Vineyard, can get out of an Aston Martin without flashing pantelastic, and most importantly, knows her way round a cheese board when posh folk are in the vicinity. I can clearly recall my first trip at 26 to a country house in Suffolk where the host served cheeses. Please note, posh people pluralise cheese as cheeses. Eating cheese in front of people with trust funds and names like Blaze and Romulus is nerve-wracking. And realising that the Dent family had lived all this time without our own cheese cave was humbling. No, I didn't know these existed either. A cheese cave is a very cold room underneath one's grade two listed former Elizabethan monastery country retreat where posh people store precious things that need a specific ambience. Spaniel kibble, artillery for their blunderbusses, and of course, Stilton. I learned that by serving cheeses at room temperature, 
their stinky richness is ramped up to the max and all the fattiness comes into its own. The flavours in cold cheese are all tangled up and stunted. Good cheese needs to be removed from your cave at least three hours pre-dinner party, which is about the time when I start sticking cheddar cubes on cocktail sticks and making a cheese and pineapple porcupine, but that's just me. Anyway, in this grand house, I'm sitting in front of an enormous board filled with strange oddities, and one of the other guests asks for a cheese harp which I'm told is used to cut the compte and not to perform an impromptu version of Wonderwall. Someone else is brandishing a limited edition Fortnum and Mason silver-plated cheese fork, which I don't like the look of. I decide to pick up a knife and tread precariously towards something that resembles a cheddar, helping myself to the lovely pointy end bit. This is in fact a grave error. You never cut the nose off the cheese. Posh people get tremendously agitated about this. They believe that something round like a brie should be served in slices like a cake so everyone gets a little bit of the middle and some of the rind. Also, if anything has blue veins in it, then good luck as one needs to slice it so that everyone can get a little of the pungent mould. Yes, you're expected to basically divide up something that already looks like an ordnance survey map so that everyone at the table gets a little of the most lush territories. Oh, and yes, you can eat the rind, but only if it's younger than 24 months. And you should never eat the rind if the cheese is wrapped in bark like I did, unless you want someone doing the Heimlich manoeuvre while other men stand about frowning about the British comprehensive system. Regardless, despite all the secret rules and fancy instruments, I'm very glad to say that the familiar sense of cheeseful happiness did set in. There you have it. Cheese is the great leveller uniting people from across the social classes until I asked for some Branston pickle and maybe a couple of Tuck crackers. I was never asked back. My father, who, as you remember, spoke fluent German, had various Teutonic-style nicknames for my mother. Mein Führer was his favoured one, which came up any time Mam was laying down the odds about his half-done DIY jobs, his inability to pay any bill until the angry red one arrived, or his hogging of the TV remote to play endless episodes of Inspector Morse. Dad lived in Germany with the army in the 50s and again in the 60s, And when he spoke about it, he talked glowingly of the breakfast, or Frühstück. There would be groaning tables of bread rolls, ten types of jam, butter and honey, boiled eggs, fruits, and of course, cheese. When I was small, I can remember him making mam, cheese and jam on toast, a quirk he'd picked up in Dusseldorf. I imagine it was something they roughly cobbled together in an army barracks before running out the door. 
dad had about four recipes in his entire repertoire, and mum loved this one. Thick slabs of cheddar on buttered toast with a thick layer of some of Gran's bramble jam. My parents were not a massively lovey-dovey couple. Public displays of affection were unthinkable. I can still hear them in peals of laughter in our kitchen in the 70s, as they'd seen a married couple they knew, holding hands in the street. My parents had spotted them from their car and could hardly contain their mirth. Holding hands? Normal folk just didn't act like that. But despite bickering almost every day for the best part of 45 years, and despite the fact they spent their evenings in front of the telly, sitting on different sofas, never cuddled up together, I knew they were passionately in love. Even as she cried much more over our cat Sooty dying of old age than over any of the times Dad threatened to leave, she knew he'd always come back. Take this to the German, he would say, as I passed him one day in the 80s, thrusting into my hands her special silver jubilee mug filled with white tea and a cheese and jam toasted sandwich for her. The German, another of his nicknames. Really, that is all a long-term relationship is. Perseverance, companionship, nicknames and in-jokes. I would transport the cheesy, jammy sandwich from his hands by the toaster to her on the sofa with a message from him. Dad says he loves you very much, I'd say. <laughs> Must be after something. Sometimes I try to pinpoint the last time they set eyes on each other. It is so muddled in my head, an overgrown forest filled with care homes in lockdown, cancer appointments, the rot of dementia, and goodbyes that never mattered to him, as he didn't even know she'd been there. There was no great goodbye, just a fizzling out, and half a year of no contact at all. In the last weeks of her life, I made her a cheese and pickle sandwich, in the dark, exhausted by sleepless nights. This was one of the only proper meal things I could still feed her. I cut the sandwich into four small squares like he'd feed a child and sat on the edge of the hospital bed the council had delivered. I passed her the sandwich. She took a small bite and swallowed, then another. Cheese and pickle, I said. Yes, you don't have to eat all of it. I like it. We sat in silence. This isn't pickle, she whispered. Yes, it is, I said, scrunching up my nose. She carried on chewing and swallowed. This is jam, she replied. I picked up the sandwich and sniffed it. I thought it must be the drugs talking, but when I held it up to a sliver of light coming through the curtains from a street light, I knew she was absolutely right. She was, in fact, holding a cheddar and jam sandwich. In my haze of tiredness, I'd mixed up the jars. She ate a little more of the sandwich before passing me the plate and closing her eyes. Just like Dad used to make 
I said. Yes. For the German. For the German. Wherever he was, he was still with her. That was It Is The Great Leveller, uniting people from across the social classes. Grace Dent on what our love for cheese says about us. Read by Grace Dent. This is an extract from Comfort Eating by Grace Dent. Guardian Faber Publishing, price £20. Order your copy at guardianbookshop.com. And Grace is back soon with a brand new season of the Comfort Eating podcast. 12 juicy episodes with guests such as John Ronson, Bridget Christie, Mary McCartney and more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts every Tuesday from the 26th of September. She'll also be hosting two Comfort Eating live events on the 9th and 11th of October. There are some tickets still available for Manchester and Islington Assembly Hall, and they can be purchased via membership.theguardian.com forward slash events. Finally, in his four years as a sex worker, Dan Moon saw women whose needs were more than physical. Here, writer Alex Gorman explores how Dan brought a listening ear and an open heart to the table which led to him falling in care with his clients. Read by Isabel Farah. It's not that men never noticed Ellie. I was just not one bit interested, she says. While her friends were out collecting horror stories and boyfriends, then later husbands and children, her focus was finish school, go to uni, get a job, do all that stuff. That focus paid off with a career in science, but by the time she turned 37, she was still a virgin. And I felt like a part of me was missing. Sally was never interested in marriage or children, but she has had some lovely relationships along the way. Her struggle has always been with monogamy, because for me, that was never important. For the past decade, the 54-year-old marketing executive has been happily partnered to a really open-minded person, which meant she didn't need anything more than that newness of sexual adventure. Though Sally and Ellie's sexual conundrums were very different, they came to the same conclusion. It was time to hire a male escort. Specifically, it was time to hire Mitch Larson, the alias used by sex worker-turned-memoirist Dan Moon. In his new book, Time for Her, Moon explores his relationships short and long-term with pseudonymous clients and the toll his four years as a sex worker took on him. Affable, in a bloke-next-door kind of way, Moon is not what you might expect a male sex worker to be if you have any expectations at all. He never quite fitted in, he says. I was a white middle-aged man and we're traditionally the enemy to liberated sex workers. Ellie came across Moon on Instagram. She followed him out of curiosity, then he followed her back. They slid into each other's DMs, and as they talked, it dawned on her. Her first time didn't have to be horrible or with someone that was just a one-night stand. It could be with him. I thought, I can control it, and I can take it into my own hands. With Moon, Ellie already felt a connection. It was a really weird thing, not something I came across a lot, especially with guys. She made a booking at the beginning of 2023. She describes her experience with him as 
the greatest thing anyone could ever give me. I felt safe, she says. Dan was fantastic. He made me feel fantastic, and he actually unleashed something in me that I think had been dormant or hiding probably my whole life. When Ellie made her booking, Sally had been seeing Moon for more than three years. I was only really seeking physical intimacy, but of course, over time, you do get connected, she says. What started as thrill-seeking became far more intense, for both of them. In his memoir, Moon writes about Sally, using the same pseudonym as one of his life's great romances. Sally read one of his first drafts. I felt it was beautiful, she says. It was sad, it was happy. It was strange seeing myself in there, but the book is a way to help people understand the real benefits of seeing a male escort. Sally was not surprised by the melancholy aspects of time for her, having already discussed them extensively with its author, but readers might be. While the book's cover resembles a romance novel and the content is often explicit, the needs that brought women to Mitch Larson's door or his DMs were rarely just sexual. Moon says the thing most of his clients wanted was just kindness. It's as simple as that, just courtesy and kindness and honesty, he says. It turns out the Lothario lessons that equipped him to satisfy the needs of a sexual adventurer like Sally and quell the jitters of an anxious first-timer like Ellie, I was just so damn nervous, she says, were not in lovemaking, but listening, just checking in the whole time and just saying, is this good? While he adopted the Larson persona for both his bookings and his book, it was always Moon who showed up, ears and heart open. The sex was just a small part of it, he says. Probably 20% of it is the sex, and the rest of it is just listening. It was falling in love, falling in care, he says. Frequently, Moon was put in situations where there were really big moments in his clients' lives, from job interviews to health scares to sexual breakthroughs that only I knew about. I would think, how did so-and-so go on that mammogram she had? Although there were some instances when a client would just want a quick bit of relief, for the most part, Moon was seeing women with complicated histories. One long-term client had early-onset Alzheimer's. Many had husbands who ignored them, cheated on them, or worse. Some, like Ellie, had simply never had anyone take the time to understand me or connect with me or vibe with me properly before. Moon feels he was hired to help heal these hurts and saw it as his job to give it your all, he says. You give your body, your mind, your heart, absolutely everything. Sally's relationship with Moon taught her there's so much more to the role in ways that are both deeply hard for the sex worker but also quite fantastic. Not only does it give women a sense of safety and control they could not get from dating, she says, it's an environment where you can actually say, this is just for me. I found that a really liberating experience. Moon began escorting aged 41 in 2019. After start-stop careers in sales, law and photography, followed by a stint as a stay-at-home father, he dived into sex work without a lot of forethought. We thought it'd just be a little bit of a side gig for a few extra bucks he says. 
Soon after listing himself on a directory website, the messages started flowing. I've always been interested in people, and I prefer to listen than to talk, and I like to make a difference, he says. Escorting just seemed to tick all the right boxes because it included that. The money was good, and I enjoyed sex. Moon's wife tentatively encouraged this midlife career pivot, but as his sex work took off, his marriage hit the rocks. Within six months, he was no longer living in the family home. In the end, it was three or four days a week and I was out late at night and it just wasn't fair on either of us, he says. He spent the next four years on an emotional and financial roller coaster. Moon earned $1,000 for two-hour bookings, his minimum, $5,500 for overnight stays, and $15,000 a week to accompany clients on luxurious holidays. During the pandemic lockdowns in Melbourne, he earned nothing. Emotionally, his sessions would result in a huge high. You're in absolute ecstasy together as the escort and the client. This would be followed by the inevitable come down, which he likens to post-holiday blues. Moon's phone was always on for clients. He did not take leave or even days off. Burnout was definitely a factor, he says, of his eventual decision to quit. It's very common in the industry. We all talk about it, and a lot of the guys that have been doing it for much longer than I have, some going on over 10 years, they have taken extended periods off, looked after themselves, and I definitely salute them for that. I really, probably, should have a few times as well. Moon's transition out of sex work has been gradual. He stopped taking new bookings, then slowly stopped seeing his regular clients too. It's breaking up with ten people at once, he says. With a lot of the clients I've seen, you just have to just be content with having them as a beautiful memory, and that's it. Writing his memoir was kind of the exit plan the whole time, a project he hopes will destigmatize the work he was so invested in. It gives women something you just can't get, and that should be celebrated, he says. It should be almost the norm. It is sad that many of his clients couldn't get the care, attention and compassion they needed from a traditional lover, he concedes. But it's nice there's a service that can provide that. Ellie says now there probably is a bit of sadness in her experience, but you're thinking, God, why hasn't this happened before? It's like a good sadness. Sad that what you've done for me is absolutely ten times more fantastic than anybody else has ever done for me. That was What Women Want When They Pay For Sex, Just Kindness, by Alex Gorman. Read by Isabel Farrah. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Grace Dent and Isabel Farah and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Selling a little? 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.